I was getting calls from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from, I mean, we all were that were on the team because this was a huge story. Yeah. I mean, it was front page New York Times. I mean, it was a big deal. We all went to bed and I will confess to having a scotch, um, <laughs> just being so disappointed and deflated. We had worked so hard. And in the morning, it was like 5.30, you know, and I were sleeping and the phone rings before cell phone things, right? And Emo picks up the phone and says, it's the law firm, come on. And I'm like, okay, hang on. 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) And I, you know, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we're going to try the Supreme Court. We're going to try the Supreme Court. And I'm like, okay, I got dressed. We all went down, got the paperwork together, filed the paperwork and went down to the court to file it and was told, no, the court's closed, it's Saturday. So I called the clerk and said, hey, this is what we're doing. And he said, you said in the post you weren't going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, but we are. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever-inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. How many lawyer jokes do you know? Do any of them cast the profession in a positive light? None of the ones that I know do. I think shark is probably the most common metaphor, right? Well, my guest today is a woman who saw the law in a different fashion. She abandoned English Lit and a PhD program to become a lawyer because of the good that the law can do in people's lives. And in our discussion today, she'll tell about one particularly interesting example of doing that good. Defended an Olympic athlete in the late 1980s, early 1990s. This was a man named Butch Reynolds who had been accused, falsely as it would eventually be proved, to have used a banned substance and so therefore should be banned from competition. And indeed, The U.S. Olympic Committee and the International Track and Field Association both banned him from competition right before the Olympics were coming up. Butch appealed that and sought the law firm that Mimi worked for. And you'll hear a very intricate story of all the ins and outs of taking a false accusation case, trying to gain access to data and evidence. Athletes charged with the doping offense back then, oddly, were deprived of due process rights. And so Mimi and her colleagues argued that point step by step by step, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. I found it one of the most fascinating legal procedural stories I've ever heard and really told from that front row seat of a young litigator who was working the case all the way up to the highest court in the land. Mimi later went on to work at Flying Horse Farms as the CEO there. That's what's called a medical specialty camp, and she'll tell you what that means in this episode as well. It's part of the Paul Newman's Children's Sunshine Network, and really a wonderful story of, again, how good works and good rules can make a real difference in people's lives. So join me now for the fascinating procedural and life in the law of Mimi Dane. Good morning, Mimi Dane. It's so delightful to have you on the podcast with me. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Well, thanks. I'm looking forward to it. So you're not the first lawyer I've had as a guest on the show, but you're the first lawyer I know of who's taken a case or had a case before the Supreme Court, which is kind of a thing unto itself and I find fascinating. So I hope we can unpack that as we get a little further into our conversation. 
But let's start back at the beginning. Tell me about your early life and where you grew up and you know what the young Mibi Dane and her childhood and family were really like. I was born in Florida and I grew up in the Milwaukee area, suburb of Milwaukee called West Dallas when I was a little kid. I was the baby of a family of six children. My mother raised us pretty much on her own. I have one memory of my father when I was very, very little and I think he was picking me up from the toilet and said, are you my baby? And I said, yes, I am. And that's my memory of my father. Um, My parents were divorced. And so I was raised by my mom, but also by my brothers and sisters. I mean, we were all kind of thrown into this world together. And my mom worked on a a number of different jobs to take care of us. She was the first meter maid in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, So a police officer without a gun, because then, you know, women shouldn't be able to carry guns in any event. (laughs) Uh, So my early life was good. I was an avid reader. I don't know what the term is now, but I was a tomboy for sure. um, (laughs) Because my my four other brothers included me in everything, you know, hand me down baseball gloves and things like that. And we pretty much were left alone to take care of ourselves during the day. I mean, we went to school, but when it was summer and we played, we were outside all the time and just lived on our block and in the alley and explored things as kids. So kind of small town suburb? No, more of at the time West Dallas was in part right where we lived was more inner city. Okay. So we were right by the state fairgrounds. Our house that we rented was right next door to the city hall where we used to climb trees and yeah, it was not suburban life at that time. Yeah. We eventually did move to the suburbs after my mom remarried. And so that was a different kind of life than when I was a little kid. So kind of free range kids up up to like about what age was that? We moved out to the suburbs, I think, when I was in sixth grade. Okay. A long time ago. So, but I think that was the yeah. time frame. We all know about the memory problems. <laughs> yeah. We did kid stuff and and we did stuff that you know, now probably kids would get in a lot of trouble for. And, you know, we had, (laughs) my brothers had a bow and arrow and we were in the city. I mean, their backyard was a huge parking lot and they decided it would be really cool to set rags on fire and shoot the arrows in the sky. (laughs) Robin (laughs) Hood. (laughs) Yeah, we, we got in trouble for that. But we, as kids, and some of this was my older brothers and I was just the tag along kid. But we were right by the state fair and the Wisconsin State Fair in Milwaukee and Wisconsin is a really big deal. Yeah. So people would drive up from Chicago to go to the state fair. And we I didn't realize what we were doing at the time because I was the little kid doing it. But my brothers would say, "Okay, go to that car. And when they get out of the car, tell them that you'll watch their car for them. And I was like, "Okay, sure, we'll watch the car. And then people would give us money. (laughs) hearing that we were going to do something to their car. But, um, you know, it was a it was a freewheeling kind of youth that changed when my mom remarried. And then she married someone who was very abusive. And so my formative years of junior high and high school were more addressing that kind of a life and trying to adjust my own world in that context. So abusive towards your mom or towards all of you or everybody? Oh, wow. He drank a great deal, and when he drank a great deal and there would be an argument, then there would be potential for violence. And so it was a, you know, looking back on it now, I I guess I didn't really think about it because that's what I was living, and I was focused on school and getting out of that kind of environment. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, were you seeing school or were you seeing a clear path that would take you out of that environment, or were you just sort of coping and getting through school? I think it was a combination of both. I loved reading. I I did well in school, but I, you know, it was the 60s. And so we were focused on other things, but I, I got through high school. I became a foreign exchange student between my junior and senior year. So I moved to and lived in Atacipa, Peru. Um, wow. And so that was a great respite for me. And then that summer after I came back, my parents had divorced and he was gone. And so that next year I really blossomed in school. And that's when I started thinking about moving forward toward college and figuring out what's next in my life. Yeah. 
What sort of vision did you have at that point? Just that college is the next waypoint or the natural thing to do? Or your had your reading interests sort of started to focus you on some particular themes or topics? Actually, no, um, which is, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I When I was in Arequipa, St. Norbert College, which is located outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin, summer home of the Green Bay Packers for all of your football fans. Cheese <laughs> heads. <laughs> St. Norbert had an exchange program with a university in Arequipa, and I wanted to go back to Peru, so I applied to St. Norbert College. That was the only school I applied to, uh-huh. and I, I did it so that I could go back to Arequipa during my junior year in college. When I arrived at St. Norbert, they had canceled the program. Uh. But I absolutely thrived and grew and developed when I was at St. Norbert. A small private school, class sizes were very, very small, but that's when I really loved learning and really did really well in school and enjoyed every facet of it. Yeah. And I suppose being out on your own and now finally able to you know, create your own environment, I think that's one of the big lessons that's important in undergraduate is you growing into a person that gets some sense of how, how to shape your own environment, right? Shape your the kind of path you want to be on, the kind of life you want to live. Is that part of what was going on? I, absolutely. And it was making friends in a really deep way. You know, I couldn't make up my mind as to what major I wanted to be. So I was an English major and a political science major with a minor in, I think, history and Spanish. Spanish mostly because I was fluent in it after being in Peru. And I rarely went to class. And honestly, it was the one course that I got a B in. And I argued with the professor about it because I did well on all the exams and stuff. And he said, if you think you deserve an A based on your participation, I'll give it to you. And I said, no, I don't. So (laughs) it was. Oh, if participation counts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it was all of the classes were really small. The professors, um, you got to know the professors. It was a unique place and it was the right place for me at that time. I think I would have been lost in a big school. Yeah. Was that the first time you felt like a near peer to the teachers that you had? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I remember having a glimpse of that with a very, very special sixth grade teacher, a language teacher, interestingly. And it was like a magical revelation how it felt to be a co-learner and a partner, not just a subordinate student. Yeah, absolutely. We had, I had one class that I signed up for a study of Dante, and there were two of us in the class. And one person dropped out. That was it. There were two people and the other woman in the class dropped out and it was me. And it was, it was a tutorial. It was fascinating. And, And our class sizes were really small. I had Dr. King, I will never forget her. She taught political science and she did a class on the early Soviet Union. And so she treated us as if we had to spy on each other. We had to, I mean, it was this whole scenario of living in the Soviet Union, studying about it, but also trying to live it as a class. And we eventually overthrew her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it it, it was a place where you, an environment where you could challenge teachers, you were challenged, and a group of friends that I'm still very, very close to this day. Wow, that's great. And and so did a direction for your career start to emerge at that point, or were you still sort of exploring? I was exploring the group of friends that I spent time with. Many of them went on to graduate school to get a master's degree in English and then a PhD. So that is what I, I thought my path would be. And where did they envision that taking them? Back to being one of your professors or were there other directions they thought? It was really to go back to teaching, okay. it was to become a professor, um, an English professor. We loved our English professors at St. Norbert, and that was sort of where people were going. My dearest friend to this day ended up getting a master's degree in political philosophy and then ended up going to cooking school. And now she writes cookbooks that are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> And my late husband is sort of a roundabout, but my late husband was one of the testers of her recipes. So it was great. Oh, fabulous. 
So I graduated. I went to Western Michigan to get a master's degree in English literature and did it in a year and enjoyed it. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, you know, what do you do with a master's degree in English? You go to some place to get a PhD in English. Um, <laughs> and that's what I did. Looking back on it now, it was a conscious decision, but it wasn't like a wake up call and saying, this is what I want to do with my life. Okay. It was, I don't know what's next. So let's go on and get the PhD. And okay. so I went to Kent State, did all of my coursework, took my comprehensives, was there from 78 to 86, taught part-time at Kent and at Akron University, was two chapters into my dissertation. And the entire time I was working on the dissertation, I knew that this I was not a scholar. I was not going to go into academia and be a scholar. And I just woke up one day and said, this is it. I'm going to law school. And everybody except for my husband, who wasn't my husband at the time, said, you are going to wake up one day and regret that you didn't finish your PhD. I'm still waiting for that day to happen. <laughs> well, I want to unpack that a little more. What, what were your signals that this wasn't for you? I mean, I loved the classwork. I loved studying for comprehensives. I liked taking the test. And then when it came to write the dissertation, I was just, I was not into the scholarship part of it. I was looking at what opportunities existed in teaching long-term. And I realized that I didn't want to teach freshman composition and, you know, English as a second language for the rest of my life. And I think I finally realized that to go into academia in English, you had to, you had to publish. I mean, that was, yep. that's how you get tenure. That's how everything happens. And that's your career security. Yeah. And at that time, all I really wanted to do was read detective novels. Um, <laughs> and so I, 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 I just, I love reading, but I, I was, I'm not, I was not going to be a scholar and I just packed up all of my books and the day that all of the stuff was out of my study and put in the return carol at the library was one of the uh, freest days I felt. Wow. You know, that not wanting to be a scholar, did that have something to do with wondering what impact your work would have? I mean, you write papers, you get published. To what end? To what impact? I am curious whether there was a sense of purpose and impact emerging in your feeling at that time. Absolutely. You know, I, I, we all used to joke that, you know, you can't publish an article in English without having a colon in it, uh, you know, <laughs> or a semicolon, right? And it, 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 I, I just didn't think I was going to give back anything to the world by going and, and writing articles. It, and it also was just not, I think if you're going to go into that area, if you're going to go into academia, that you have to have a love for that and a care about that. And I didn't really care whether the world read about the connection between Salem Bainey and the San Friscan Friars and Chaucer. I just, but I, I had always debated about law school and I knew that if I went to law school and, and did well, that that was a place where I could really make an impact in the world. Where had the curiosity about law school come from? I mean, nowadays, an awful lot of people sort of sneer at law school. I think in part from political science, in part from television shows, which sounds silly, um, you know, L.A. Law, Hill Street Blues. But it was also just reading about um, how the law changed individuals' lives. You know, reading, I, I think at the time I had read um, Anthony Lewis's Gideon versus Wainwright and how that decision changed the lives of people who were arrested and determined that there was a right to counsel. And I just thought, this is something that I can do. And if I want to teach, I can eventually do that and be successful at it. Yeah. So your bio says that you became a, a commercial litigator. What does that mean? Teach a geologist what that means. <laughs> By the way, hello, hello to the kitty cat who's arrived on scene. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's Maxwell. So it means that I did not do um, plaintiff's work. I didn't do tort work. So I didn't do personal injury work. Most of my cases dealt with businesses suing each other or hospitals suing each other. Or one of the clients I, I had was representing the Columbus Airport 
um, and helping it determine where picketing zones might be at the airport when a pilot would go on strike or for whatever reason. So it's it's not dealing with injuries to the body or and it's not criminal law. Okay. Okay. And having been sort of intrigued by a legislative change and its impact on lives, how did you end up on the litigation side? I mean, a law degree can take you lots of places. You might have aimed at going into the legislature and trying to be the person that writes and enacts the new laws. What, what was that trigger? A, a, a trial work. Um, I, I love teaching. Um, and when you try cases, whether whether cases ever go to trial or not, it's about writing and research and explaining something that's very complex in a way that's understandable if it's in front of the jury to people who may have an eighth grade level education to, you know, uh, uh, advanced degrees. But it's a way of teaching and explaining something complex uh, that makes a difference. So there are a lot of pathways that people with law degrees go. We've touched on some of them, right? A a commercial litigator, a plaintiff's lawyer, I want to sue someone, you help me sue someone, contracts, wills, tax law for a company. But I've known a lot of lawyers that are in jobs that have nothing outwardly to do with practicing law. And it has struck me that a law school degree must give you some very transportable life and professional skills. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, the lesson that I have learned over time and that I impart and, and try to impart young lawyers is that there's not one pathway with a degree. You can be the CEO of a nonprofit and your law degree is going to be invaluable. I think law teaches you a way to think, a way to analyze, a way to look at risks. I think a lawyer is a problem solver whether it's going into the legislature or helping someone with a contract or, you know, creating a bond issue to build COSI or something like that. I think the skills are- COSI being, that was a plug for the museum that I built and ran for a while in Columbus. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think it's the skill set that allows you to do just about anything and be good at it. Yeah. You know, when I was at NOAA my first time around in the 90s, the senior most career civil servant in the agency was a woman born in Britain and trained as a lawyer. And she's now in the position of essentially chief operating officer for what was at the time, I think, a $4 billion agency that does all sorts of very technical things like designs and builds satellites and so forth. And I remember we had one immense contract to introduce modern day workstations, what we would call modern day in the early 90s, modern day computer workstations into the National Weather Service. And the whole project was just in the ditch. I mean, it was not developing properly. It was behind schedule. It was way over budget. And one after another engineer and scientist in the Weather Service had sort of thrown their body at the problem and never managed to unravel it and solve it. And it was Diana Josephson, a lawyer who had, and I think you've put your finger on it, she had great analytical acumen. She had a a tremendous capacity for detail and an appreciation of the importance of detail. And this was this was really pre-computer age. She was, you know, penciling and papering the whole thing. But she's the one that sat down and sort of laid it all out and looked at the pieces and parts and spotted the really incisive questions to ask. And then knew knew the difference between a good answer and a weak answer and wasn't going to buy any weak answers. And the lawyer turned that whole thing around where all the techie guys had not been able to do it. It was a really, it's a really impressive example to me. I think that's right. I think, and one of the things that I learned in the practice that stays with me and I think is important is when you do trial work, what I loved about it at the time, I think, I think the practice now is much more specialized. But when I was coming up, when you did trial work, when you were a litigator, you worked on so many different subject matters. So I had a case involving asphalt. And so I learned about how asphalt worked. I had a case, (laughs) I don't know if anybody even remembers it at the federal courthouse anymore, but a toilet paper case. And (laughs) (laughs) it was a, a huge case because it was about the trade secrets surrounding the cardboard rolls around which toilet paper is made. Wow. And someone stole that trade secret. But I learned 
ton about how paper towel and toilet paper rolls are made. The other lesson is that you, when you do trial work and when you do broader litigation work, you have to understand the importance of experts. And so you always have to hire people that are smarter than you. You want the expert who knows what the secret is in toilet paper and your job is to help him or her translate that scientific information into something that a jury or a judge can understand. Hmm. So you mentioned when you were moving away from going into academia that you, you felt people should really go there to have a particular kind of passion for the, the teaching and the scholarship and the writing. What do you advise young people thinking about a law degree? What should they be aware of and be sure they be sure as part of their desire or part of their motivation? Is there any parallel guidance? Yeah, I I think one of the advantages and one of the lessons I learned by waiting to go to law school, even though it might not have been intentional at the time, is having some gap time between when you graduate from undergraduate and you go to law school to give yourself that break because the work in law school is, is hard. For me, it was I loved learning about the law. Some people went to law school to get their law degree and move on. And I'm sure I was irritating to them because I really <laughs> wanted to study it and know it. And I did the work. But I think as you're in law school, learn the basics early on. Accept the first year courses because they are going to be the foundation of whatever you do when you go into practice, whether it's contracts, whether it's a chief operating office officer, to know, have those basic understandings of the basic cases is critical. Wow. Wow. One of your cases did go to the Supreme Court, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, not every lawyer who wants to can argue a case before the Supreme Court. There's a special pathway, a special law license or special bar that you have to be admitted to to actually present the case to the Supreme Court. Is that right? To argue a case in front of the court, you have to be admitted to the Supreme Court bar. I was never admitted into the court okay. because our case went up to the court on an emergency motion, but we had a, a, one of our partners who was admitted to the court. What does it take to be admitted to the Supreme Court bar? Another law, another bar exam, basically? No, it's filing paperwork and paying a, a fee. It, it's really very simple. It was just something I knew that I was not, my practice was not going to be as someone who argued cases in front of the court. It's a very, there are very few lawyers who have active Supreme Court practices. Yeah, yeah. Very few. So can you tell us anything about the case, your case that did go to the court? Yeah, it was um, it, it was a case involving the track star, Butch Reynolds, who at the time held the world record for the 400-meter race. I had just started at the firm in 1990. So I was a young associate. Well, I wasn't young, but I was an associate. And one of the partners said, Mimi, I'd like you to bill a few hours on this case to think of how we can help this young man who was falsely accused of using the steroid Nandrolone after he had completed a race in Monaco. So the issue was, how do we get the case into federal court so that we can protect his rights as a participant through the United States Olympic Committee. So were they trying to vacate his his win in Monaco or prevent him from racing other races or both? Yes, they had suspended him. Oh, okay. They had suspended him. He was at his prime. He had extensive contracts with Nike and other other organizations like that, other companies like that, and the loss was to be suspended was huge. And it was 1990, and so everyone was building up to the 1992 Olympics. Yeah, yeah. And how old was he at the time? Do you remember? I don't. Uh, I, relatively young. I know he had won a gold medal as part of the relay team in, in the Seoul Olympics and a silver in the 400 meter in the Seoul Olympics. Right. 1988 in Seoul, Korea. Right. Yeah. So now everyone's heading to Barcelona, and he's yep. been put. he's been put on ice. He's been put on ice and wrongfully. And so my job, I mean, we had lots of different scientific experts who helped us prove that the urine that was tested 
either did not belong to Butch Reynolds or was improperly tested. And part of my job was to figure out the legal arguments and the legal strategies to get us into federal court and to stay into federal court. So the first suit that we filed argued that under the USOC, if Congress delegated exclusive authority of the USOC to determine whether athletes can participate in the Olympics, then there must be a requirement that they're given due process Mm -hmm. when they are suspended from participating in Olympic events. So the Olympic Committee can't just be willy-nilly or wanting about it as in a normal U.S. court. You have to have due process steps and evidence and so forth. Right. Some legitimacy to what you've decided, not just we decide we don't like Butch. Right. And so the Olympic Committee rules, and it was called TAC, the Athletic Congress at the time, which ran track and field, had a process by which one is supposed to go to arbitration. We argued that the process was not fair because at the time, the International Federation and the U.S. Federation were not giving us the underlying documents to establish chain of custody that the urine was butches. They weren't giving us the scientific documents to show how the urine was tested to determine that there was the presence of nandrolone in the urine. We weren't getting any of that documentation at all. So we went to federal court and the federal court judge said, nope, you got to exhaust your administration, your administrative remedies. So go through all of these arbitrations. We filed an appeal with the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said, yep, district court is right. Exhaust your remedies. What was the issue with going through all the arbitration paths? I mean, were there like qualifying meet or something coming up that he? Yeah. Okay. There were meets that were coming up. There were other races. It's the whole process by which one trains to become an Olympian. If he can't stay on that path because he's jumping through administrative hoops, he's effectively got no way to make the Olympic team. That's part of it. And we also argued that those pathways and those procedures were fundamentally unfair and did not offer him the kind of due process that he needed. Okay. So we went to the first arbitration, um, which was held before the AAA, and we won that. Step back to the science of it, but when male urine is tested to determine whether there's the presence, it's the same for women, but different elements, but when it's tested, you have to use an internal standard to measure whether there's a steroid in the urine. The lab in France that did the testing did not use an internal standard. They determined they were going to use the ratio of testosterone to epitestosterone. A proxy instead of a real measurement. Yes. And so that ratio should be one-to-one. And that ratio should be the same in the A bottle and in the B bottle. So to step back, I don't know what it's like now, but back then when an athlete is tested for the presence of steroids, they urinated into a bottle. And that bottle was then in front of the athlete divided into two bottles and sealed up and then placed what then was the chain of custody into this thing called an envelope pack. The envelope pack is sealed with this clip, a plastic clip, and everybody claimed that you couldn't open that envelope pack without breaking the clip. So whatever the ratios are in the A bottle, they have to match exactly what's in the B bottle, right? If it's going to come from the same person. It's the same urine in two bottles, that's all, yeah. Well, when we finally got the documents, we were able to establish that the ratio in the A bottle was one-to-one, the ratio in the B bottle as they did different tests, were completely different, and they never reached a one-to-one ratio. So something's clearly wrong with the sampling. Yeah. And they couldn't, therefore, prove, because that was their internal standard, that Nandrolone was present. And if the A bottle doesn't match the B bottle, then it can't be butches, right? Right. And there were other documentations that suggested that the lab made a mistake in terms of identifying which sample it was. Right. So... Arbitration won. We present that evidence. The arbitrator said, you win. And we said, great. And then the International Federation and the U.S. Federation said, nope, we're not accepting that. You have to go through our own procedures. So we did because Judge Keneary said we had to exhaust our administrative remedies. So we had the hearing before PAC. We had our experts there. They had their expert 
He ran his own doping lab, um, anti-doping lab in Germany. We had an expert who ran doping labs in the U.S. And part of PAC's argument was that the Envo PAC couldn't be breached, so there could never be an issue. Mm-hmm. But we had lots of help from strangers who chose for various reasons, and mostly because the Olympic area is very insular to protect their own ability right. to do things. Right. But we had an expert who came to visit us, but before he came, said, go to your local drugstore and buy a dental pick. And so we did. And he showed up and he showed one of my colleagues and me how to use the dental pick to open the Envo pack. And not break it. And not break it and, and not leave a scratch on the clip. Ah. And so to prepare for this arbitration, we practice and practice and practice. Basically picking the lock. Yeah. And we did it in seconds. So we presented all of our scientific evidence, and then we demonstrated to the panel how easy it was, and we taught the panel and the International Federation's expert how to open it. (laughs) I mean, it was just... Here, let me dismantle your entire safety argument on these samples and show you how to do it. (laughs) Yes. And, And there was just this moment where everybody's mouth dropped in the arbitration, and for all the reasons, we won that arbitration. So Butch was cleared under the the U.S. Federation. He should have been able to run. And the International Federation said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to make you go through another arbitration, this time in England. And you're going to get one day, and that's it. And we're going to bring in all new experts, an all-new panel. And they had, at that point, threatened Butch with an additional suspension for challenging the drug test. And so we went to England, uh, had one day to present. The IAAF, which was the organization at the time, that was its name, had established a press conference well before the arbitration began to release its decision. They did not accept all of the filings uh, from the underlying U.S. arbitration. It made you do it all over again. Yeah. No, they said, we don't need to see that evidence. It it was a 12-hour hearing, and they announced that, no, it was not a valid, uh, that the U.S. made a mistake and that he was suspended. And they waited until May of 1992. So the Olympics are coming up in a couple months. The Olympic trials in New Orleans are June 20th. Wow. So Butch can't run. And so, again, one of the things that we did was to go back and figure out if we're not going to succeed on the federal constitutional claim, which we tried, then what is a contractual due process claim that we can use? And so I hit the books. Many of us hit the books. We found plenty of law to support a contractual due process claim uh, so that the hearing was not fair, fundamentally fair. We had a breach of contract. We had tortious interference with his endorsements. And we filed on June, oh, June 12th, I think it was, a motion for a temporary restraining order against TAC and the IAAF allowing Butch to run. And is TAC the international body? No, TAC was the U.S. body. Okay. And the IAAF was the international body. Because this is just about the U.S. Olympic trials at this point to get him to be able to run yep. in the trials. Yep. Okay. Yep, absolutely. But the USOC was not supporting him either. Uh, they would have to argue his case to the international body. Yeah. And they were deferring. They were actually deferring to the international body saying we're, we're not we're not getting involved. They weren't supporting yeah, we're not, us. We're not picking this fight. They actually actively opposed our motion for a temporary restraining order to allow Butch to run, claiming that it would affect other athletes ability to participate in the Olympic trials. We got the TRO from Judge Keneary. It was extended. And then the IAAF threatened other race promoters that if they allowed Butch to run, they would suspend all the athletes who participated. I mean, this all sounds like Byzantine Medici empire kind of conniving. This is bizarre. It was bizarre. Kathy, it was crazy. And they said, we are not subject to any law. We are the IAAF. Well, that's clearly what they're doing. I mean, we we are a law unto ourselves and we do anything we want. Absolutely. I had no, I had no ideas. You know, we have this 
lovely gilded image from the outside of sport in the Olympic Games. This is downright tawdry. <laughs> it is. And, and because of what we did, the rules have changed now. So athletes can get an immediate arbitration from an independent body as a result of our work. And are the other bodies now obliged to accept that independent arbitration? They can't keep playing, move the goalpost? Yes, they are. Wow. That's my understanding. Well, for someone who started law school to hope to have an impact on people's lives, this is not a bad impact and not just on Butch's life. Right. But it was, so we had a preliminary injunction hearing on June 19th. The court rendered its decision, the district court here in Columbus, Ohio, Judge Canary rendered the preliminary injunction and said, Butch is allowed to run. That decision came out at about noon. Butch was already in New Orleans. We called Butch and said, it's a go. Be focused, be focused, be focused. That evening, TAC filed a emergency motion to stay the decision before the Sixth Circuit because the IAAF was threatening. So they took it up a notch and said, don't let that go forward. He should not run. He should not run because the IAAF was threatening that any athlete who ran at the Olympic trials with Butch would be precluded from being in the Olympics. Ooh. And so, so the international yeah. guys are saying if any American runs with Butch, none of them get in. None of them get in. Yikes. So several athletes also appealed to the Sixth Circuit and said, hey, that's not fair to us. Yeah, we didn't do anything here. They can't tell us we can't qualify. Right. But the Sixth Circuit agreed and said, yes, we are not going to let Butch run. That's the end of it. And we got that decision like maybe at seven o'clock sometime in the evening. So we called Butch and said, it's done. Like the day before the race, this is? Yeah. Yeah. It's oh the night God. before the race. I was getting calls from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from, I mean, we all were that were on the team because this was a huge story. Yeah. I mean, it was front page New York Times. I mean, it was a big deal. And we all went to bed and I will confess to having a scotch, um, <laughs> just being so disappointed and deflated. We had worked so hard. In the morning, it was like 5.30. Emil and I were sleeping and the phone rings before cell phone things, right? And Emil picks up the phone and says, it's the law firm. Come on. And I'm like, okay, hang on. 5.30 and, in the morning. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we're, we're going we're gonna to try the Supreme Court we're going to try the Supreme Court. And I'm like, okay, I got dressed. We all went down, but I'd never practiced in front of the court. None of us really knew that much of the procedure, but step back a little bit. I was fortunate enough after I finished law school to clerk for Judge Lewis Pollock of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, the most brilliant man in the world that I've ever met, the kindest, nicest, and I learned more from him than probably anyone else. And he was what was called a feeder judge. So many of his clerks would go on to clerk for the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. So there were several clerks who had clerked for the Supreme Court, but were no longer on the court. You know, they, were no, they were not law clerks at the time. We decided we were going to go for an emergency stay to the Supreme Court that gets assigned to a single judge. Each Supreme Court member. So the whole panel's not going to have to meet. No, this is a normal channel that the court allows, right? Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. It's typically used in death penalty cases. Okay. And we had told the, the Washington Post and other places that we just, we were done. You know, we tried our best for Butch. We're done. So we met the next morning and the trials were to begin at one o'clock. So this is June 20th. Justice Stevens was the justice assigned to the Sixth Circuit. I had reached out to former law clerks of his and other justices to find out what in the hell do we do, right? Yeah. And you're like, you find, here's what you do, here's the, the process. And so we got the paperwork together, filed the paperwork, and one of our Washington, D.C. partners went down to the court to file it and was told, no, the court's closed. It's Saturday. So I called the friend and said, now what do we do? <laughs> and the person said, Call the clerk's office and let them know, let the person know 
that you're filing an emergency stay and they will let your partner in to file the paperwork or they'll take the paperwork and file it and get it to Justice Stevens. So I called the clerk and said, hey, this is what we're doing. And he said, you said in the post you weren't going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, but we are. And so we had that paperwork filed by 10 o'clock in the morning. The PAC, the U.S. organization, had an hour or so to file a reply brief, and they did. And Justice Stevens issued his order at, I think, I have it somewhere in the house at like 1230. So Butch has got about a half an hour before his race? Yeah. Saying that the threat to do harm to others cannot be a proper way to adjudicate a case. And so Butch was allowed to run. And this, I mean, there's no more appeal, right? We're done. Yeah, yeah. And so we're all at the firm watching the Olympic trials on NBC TV, right? Because that's what's happening. But we, Kathy, we had to give notice to TAC that this has happened. Yeah. So the press was staying very neutral. There was a reporter whose name will be, I'm not going to mention the name, who took my call. And I said, all I need you to do is hand the paperwork to Olin Castle and then they're served. That's all I need you to do. And we're watching this happen live on TV. So we served Olin Castle. He's with the Track Federation. He's with the Track Federation. He's been now told the Supreme Court says he runs. Get out of the way. Exactly. And then there was over the loudspeaker, the announcement that the 400 meter trial will not occur today. So there was total chaos at the Olympics. The press was then covering it. And then that afternoon, tax lawyers filed a motion with the entire Supreme Court asking them to vacate the day that Justice Stevens had put in place. Yeah. Let us win. Let us win. And they did not serve us. So we didn't know it had been filed. Yeah. And so we got a call from the clerk's office saying, hey, are you going to respond to this? And we said, we didn't know it was there. So he faxed it to us and we had 45 minutes to quickly (laughs) type in a response. And we did. We cut and pasted, did all of those things, but we got it faxed. And then that evening, the Supreme Court refused to vacate Justice Stevens' decision. So then I think it was the next day, Butch was allowed to run. It might have been a few days later. I'm drawing a blank on the timing of it. And he did not qualify to automatically be on the team. He qualified as an alternate, which is not surprising. I mean, the up and down. Yeah, the ups and downs. You can tell someone to stay focused through all that, but my goodness, what a whipsaw. Yeah, you can't. You can't. I mean, but he, he, he became an alternate, and in the end, the USOC refused to take him to Barcelona. They had him go down to, uh, I forget where they were meeting, somewhere in Florida. They gave him his Olympic. Uh, uniform and all of that stuff, but said, you're not and going to Barcelona. Not going. Yeah. Yeah. The IAAF says, and by the way, your suspension is going to be continued for another six months beyond the two years. So what became of Butch beyond that? Do you know? Um, yeah. we So we went back to federal court and on the overall case, won a $27.1 million judgment on his behalf. And then the Sixth Circuit reversed the decision of the court saying that there wasn't enough personal jurisdiction to hold them accountable, which was the wrong decision. But the Supreme Court did not take the case in because it was not a case of great import in terms of yeah. the personal jurisdiction issue. Yeah. During that time, um, as we were proceeding through the court process, which was another couple of years, Butch was running and competing. He won a gold medal at the indoor track meet in Toronto as soon as he was able to compete and now does coaching. And so he, he continued to compete for as long as he could. Yeah. Wow. Honest to goodness, that's like out of Medici history. That's just a crazy, crazy story. Oh. And, and the, the saddest part is that the science, and that's the critical piece of this, the science absolutely established that it was not his urine. Some bottles got mixed up or something, but you could not, you should not attach that result to him. Right. And the scientific method by which the lab in France analyzed the urine 
was completely wrong. Yeah. So part of what happened with Butch's case is it really changed the way athletes can protect themselves so that they now do get the documentation to establish Good. what the yeah. process was. And so he, he really changed the way sport is conducted for all athletes in, in tennis, you know, whatever it might be, there's protocols in place now, especially for Olympic athletes. Wow. Wow. So, so you made a pretty radical course change some years later that took you to a place called Flying Horse Farms, which is pretty famous if you live where we do in central Ohio, but maybe not much beyond. What is Flying Horse Farms and what drew you to it? So I had been practicing law for 21 years and I was 55 and I was thinking about what's next. The way the law firm and and big law, I mean, I was in an international, I was in a global law firm. And so it was big law. The way it was changing and the way it was changing for me as a partner was not where I wanted to go. Nothing negative to big law, but it was much more about, you know, how much business are you bringing in? You know, what are your billables? That's going to be your compensation. And I was tired. I was ready for what's next. And so one of the lessons that I learned in that process is, and it's what I tell people when they're thinking about what's next, is never run away from something, run to something. Mm. So take your time to figure out what's next and run to something that's going to be what you want to do, as opposed to saying, I don't want to be in this law firm, I got to find a job. It's always better to find what that next is. I was working with a coach at the time. Like an executive coach? Executive coach at the time. Career coach suggesting, you know, these are the steps you have to take. Think about what is the environment you want to be in? Do you want to move out of Columbus? Where do you want to go? What kind of work do you want to do? What is the structure of an organization? And so I had this whole thing plotted out. I didn't want a hierarchical organization. I needed to stay in Columbus because I was taking care of my mother who was here. I didn't want a huge drop in compensation, but, but you know, I was willing to take some because when Emil and I married and bought a house here, we made the decision not to be married to the firm by mm-hmm. the size of the house that we bought. Right. And, and that was a good lesson as well. So I'd done all this thinking and I was ready for what's next. And Cindy Lazarus, who was then working with Flying Horse Farms. Again, another renowned local figure from a long running family of influence. And Cindy was a judge, right? Cindy was a judge. She had retired from being a judge and was then the CEO at the YWCA here in Columbus. Then she had retired from that and was really going to retire. Uh, and, <laughs> and we joke about that. You know, some of us are not so good at retiring. <laughs> and she came over to my house and she, she, before Flying Horse Farms, I had applied to become a CEO at a different organization, a nonprofit, I thought would be a good fit. I didn't get that position and that's fine. It was the right decision of the yeah. organization at the time. I learned a lot of lessons in that process, but Cindy knew of that and came over and said, I found this organization you need to quit your job right now at Squire and become the CEO. And I said, Cindy, I'm in the middle of a six-month trial in Canton, Ohio. I don't know anything about this organization. I- I'm not doing that. And she said, but you're going to love it. You just need to do this. And, I'm, and she's like, jump. I'm going to become, jump, just jump. <laughs> she said, I'm, I'm going to be the CEO so that you can, you know, then when I'm done, you can take over. And I'm like, Cindy, don't do that because I don't know. I don't know anything about this organization. And she said, well, I want you to meet the founders. I want you to come for a tour of camp. And I did that. I met the founders. I took a tour of camp and it was just being built at the time. But I was in this trial and committed um, yeah. as one of the attorneys in a, in a huge trial. And I said, I will join the board. You know, I, I, I want to learn more about it. I don't think I want to be the CEO. I don't think I'm interested in that. So I joined the board and I fell in love with Flying Horse Farms. It bills itself as a medical specialty camp. What does that mean? It's broader than that, Kathy. It's part of the Serious Fun Children's Network that was founded by Paul Newman, the actor. Mm. So the first camp like it opened up in Connecticut called the Hole in the Wall Game Camp. Not surprising for Paul to name it that. And he'd been visiting a friend in the hospital 
and there was a young child with cancer in the hospital at the same time. I think I have the story right. And he decided he was going to build a camp where kids with serious illnesses could go and, as he said, raise a little hell, where kids could be kids and their parents could get respite because there are doctors and nurses who are specialized in the area of the disease to allow them to be kids, to get dirty, to just be kids. And Flying Horse Farms was the first camp in the Midwest to be a part of the Serious Fun Children's Network. Mm. Cindy helped open camp and our, then I became the, so the story of my going to Flying Horse Farms, I'm on the board and I'm, I've, I've seen the magic that happens at camp. I mean, imagine, imagine being a parent whose daughter's heart stops randomly, mm. you know, it just yeah. stops randomly. Yeah. Right? Continuous and terror, continuous terror, continuous medicine, and the kid doesn't get to do anything, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there is this place where the head of pediatric cardiology from the Cleveland Clinic is volunteering that week. The same person from Dayton Children's is volunteering that week. And your kid gets to go to camp and you have a week off. Yeah. And the kid gets to see other kids like her. And then go to archery and swim in a pool or climb a high ropes course. And all of a sudden, there is this empowerment, this resilience for both the child and the family. So it's a sleepaway camp. The kids go on their own. Yep. Sleepaway camp. They're there for a week. Wow. Five days, about a week. There are doctors and nurses at the well nest um, who are there. So I'm witnessing this as a board member thinking this is really cool. And Cindy made it clear to the board that she was going to do this work until she found a replacement. So we were at a board meeting in Cleveland, because Flying Horse Farm serves kids from all over the state. Um, we're driving home from the board meeting, and I, and I said to Cindy, you know, where are you in terms of finding your replacement? Just curious. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, I'm I don't know. Next where, <laughs> where she, her response was, I don't know where are you in terms of quitting and becoming the CEO? And I'm like, hmm. And I looked at her and I said, I need to think about this. And she said, well, let's talk some more, but think about it. And I came home and I said to Ema, I think I'm going to do this. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We haven't talked about it. And he said, I'm not going to go back to living like a graduate student so you can run some camp. I'm just not doing that. And I'm like, honey, we're, you know, we're going to talk about this. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll take our time. We'll analyze everything. And I was running at the time. And, and so I said, I'm going to go for a run. I went out for a run. I think I did a five-mile run. And I came back to the house and I said, honey, I'm doing it. And we'll figure the rest out. So I told Cindy I would do it. And that's and you did the it. next chapter. And I did it. And it is the most rewarding and hardest job I've ever had. Because as the CEO, you know, I was responsible for raising $4 million a year to keep the doors open, to provide for the staff. And, and that's one part of it, right? So like if you work at OSU in fundraising, you're not, you're not raising money to keep the lights on, right? right. You're raising, because right. there's a billion dollars to do that. Here, we're raising money yeah. to keep the camp It's going. a lot more hand to mouth. Absolutely. And all of a sudden, it was like, I have, it was our first summer of having camp. It was a small staff and, you know, we had volunteers helping us. And, you know, here's the lawyer in me looking at the swimming pool and saying, I hate the swimming pool, right? The kids <laughs> love it. It's the greatest risk. I'm looking at archery saying, really? Or I'm looking at fishing <laughs> saying, you know, should some kid with cancer be, you know, picking up a fish? So all of the ramifications and the risk management and all of that that's critical when you're taking children with serious illnesses into your care is all of a sudden on your shoulders. And at the same time, what a gift it is to see the transformation of those children. So the young girl whose heart randomly stopped, she came to camp that first time, Kathy, was in Sparkle 5 Cabin. 
So a cabin of eight-year-old girls, all with heart disease, and there's glitter everywhere, (laughs) right? I mean, but they all have zippers down their chest. And for the first time, they're with kids who have the same or similar disease, you know, a girl with a heart transplant, a girl with heart failure, a girl whose heart stops. I mean, this young woman came to camp the first time. Her father dropped her off. Her mom dropped her off. And she had little Lammy with her, her, her little stuffed animal. Yeah. Stuffed animal. And wherever she went, Lammy went. Right. And, but all of a sudden this kid was like, I can run, I can do stuff. And she left camp after that first summer and went to her school and said, I want to be on the swim team. And she went to her doctor and she said, that's what I want to do. And her doctor said, you can't do that. And she looked at him and she said, no, your job is not to say no. No one says no anymore. Your job is to figure out how I can. Good for her. But that's what we did at camp. I mean, at Flying Horse Farms to this day and at all the camps in the Serious Fun Children's Networks, it's all adaptive programming. So if there's a child at camp with a brain tumor that cannot be upside down on the high ropes course, our doctor, Dr. Galanowitz, Dr. Barb, who was our medical director at the time, figured out a way herself to be up there to figure out how a kid could do it. And if a kid couldn't do it, that area wasn't open because we wanted the kids always to be included. Yeah. So at the pool during the week that we had um, hematology oncology and we had kids with sickle cell to this day, the, the pool is heated up much warmer, but there's also a warming shed right next to the pool so that when a child with sickle cell comes out of the pool, she can go right into the warming shed, adjust her temperature and not have a brain crisis. Right. And it's the most magical place. And for the parents, that respite a week away from your oh, yeah. kid, it's just it's remarkable. A week away from the agony. And, yeah. 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 So what, what keeps you busy these days? Did you have managed retirement? You've semi-managed retirement? You flunked retirement? Um, I'm managing retirement. Okay. I'm enjoying it. You know, I have my book club. We all have book clubs. <laughs> As you know, I do a lot of cooking. I have a group of friends that I play Scrabble with. But I also do a lot of advising and consulting with different nonprofits on a pro bono basis for free, especially startup organizations Mm -hmm. on how to think about being in a startup because Flying Horse Farms was a startup, right? And, you know, we called it insane, but doable. (laughs) That's a perfect description. Yeah. Right. But the lesson I learned out of that is that's probably not the way to run an organization, right? Not long-term. Not long-term. You can do it short-term, but you can't ask employees to think about that. And so, you know, it's, it's how do you build up an organization slowly? Um, how do you, as a CEO, how do you manage stress? I mean, for seven years, I did that and it was stressful. I, I mean, I lost my husband during that tenure and it's a lot of weight and it's also... You know, I will talk to people about when do you know it's time to leave? When do you know that it's time for what's next? I learned that in the law firm. I learned that in Flying Horse Farms. When you're not, when you're not as good as you need to be because of a whole host of factors, it's time to say what's next. Right. Right. And also, you know, I talk to a lot of young people about how do you save for retirement and how do you think about retirement, especially my granddaughters. You know, from the time that they started working, my mantra was them, start now. You want the flexibility. You want that independence. You know, in the end, my mother did not have that financial independence. And I cared for her and was financially helpful and responsible. And I, you know, I don't want that to be for anybody. My sister and I are like adamant about that. So I do that a lot. And I read and I just enjoy not having morning meetings. I don't do breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do some work with the law school and with the vet school at OSU. And both deans at one point said, look, let's have breakfast together. And my response was, sorry, I don't do breakfast anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just don't have to. I don't even do alarm clocks anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually do alarm clocks, Kathy, to set up things like this 
So because I can get lost in what I'm doing and say, oh, no, you have this podcast today. Set your alarm clock for 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. beforehand. But in the morning, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm right there. I particularly love your advice about not running away from something, running to it. My, I found over my transitions, I can tell I've got it timed right if I feel both sad to be leaving and glad to be going. Absolutely. I remember going to various people in the law firm saying, I'm leaving. I'm so excited that I'm going to Flying Horse Farms and I'm in tears because I'm leaving a practice that I love. Yeah. I think the other advice is don't be afraid of what's next and don't be afraid to fail. At Squire, when turn a certain age, you can retire. I don't think they have it anymore, but under mine, there was a deferred comp process or Mm -hmm. sort of a retirement pay. And I wanted to be able to do that. So I went to the head of litigation at the time, who was a dear friend and a wonderful, wonderful manager, and said, this is what I want to do, and this is the process I want to do. So he had to write a letter to the global managing partner. And I remember sitting in my chair in my office, and Jim called me and said, all right, I am about to push the send button. You have a moment to change your mind. And I sat there, and I was like, "Uh, push it. And he said, done. And he hung up. And I sat in my chair and I said, oh, shit, what did, what did you I just do? do? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as I thought about it, the worst thing that could happen is that I would fail. Right. And you have to figure out something new. And there are so many ways that I failed as a CEO at Flying Horse Farms, but there were so many ways that I succeeded. And that's an important lesson for anyone in leadership is that the road to success is always through failure. It's always through failure. But if you zoom back a little bit, Flying Horse Farms succeeded under your leadership for seven years. So all those points where you felt you failed were like when you were a little kid and you fell down and you scraped your knee. I mean, you did fall and you did scrape your knee, but you know the world didn't end and your life didn't yeah. end. And you know the things that are important were not harmed by the fact that you scraped your knee or stubbed your toe. Yeah. But yeah, you can still look at the scar on your knee and say, well, there's one, there's one where I fell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I, I, yes, I am absolutely proud of the legacy that I left Flying Horse Farms. Uh, it, it's just an amazing place. And so, you know, if, if I'm going to pitch anything for all of your listeners who have tons of money and want to give to a charity that changes lives, Flying Horse Farms is it. But I do think all of us learn by the mistakes that we make. And I learned a lot. And I've learned a lot now to be able to advise other CEOs of nonprofits to think about what, what do they need to think about? You know, you need, you need to take care of yourself in the process and, the, and all of those kinds of things as well. Yeah. Well, Mimi, you've had a, a fascinating life. And I thank you so much for sharing the Byzantine story of your encounter with the Supreme Court and the track and field organization and for keeping on doing the things you're doing that keep making our community the great place to live that it is. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.